Thank you, Kelvin. Hey, good morning, church family. How are we doing this morning? Good. That's good. Everyone's a bit quiet this morning. Um, the Broncos won again. There you go. Um, there's a few strong personalities that love football around here, eh? Um, but Lord willing, God will change your heart and turn him to, to himself. Um, but good morning, church. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm not into cricket. Um, <laughs> so, what a blessing it is, church, to, um, to be back into exegetical preaching, yeah? We're loving it. And uh, if you've only just come on board, we're only just into our new series of First and Second Peter. Uh, you haven't missed much because, funnily enough, the first sermon was two verses. The last week's sermon was three. And today, I've been blessed with four. Um, so, yeah, we're climbing the ladder of verses. Um, but look, look, there is some real depth in these four verses. It doesn't sound like much, but there is so much here. And I just want to say, if, if at the end of this you have more questions that need to be answered, um, please don't hesitate. Let's have a talk. Let's chat through the realities of, of what we're going to look at this morning because they are heavy realities. Uh, and, and if I was to give this message a title, it would have to be something along the lines of uh, where joy and sorrow meet. That's, that's the heaviness in it. Uh, and, and I think we can all relate to the fact that um, uh, one minute we can be joyful and the next minute we can be sorrowful, uh, eyes filled with tears. Um, the example of a child on Christmas morning uh, opening up that present and, and they're ripping open the paper and all they have to do is grab a glimpse of the packaging under the wrapping and joy and elation fills their eyes and they jump to their feet praising with such joy. Oh, finally, thank you, thank you, thank you. I finally got the gift that I've been so longing for. And then it's not only just like five minutes later with such sorrow, they come with their broken gift. It's broken already, maybe two minutes into it. He broke it, she broke it. But there's joy and then there's sorrow. So by nature, we, we would say, look, they don't, they don't go together. Joy and sorrow, they don't mesh together. But Lord willing, as we, we look through these four verses, we would see that it is the case. The fact that God would show us this morning that it is in fact His good plan and His good purpose for those that are in Christ. So let's just pray together before we look at these four verses. Father God, we, we do need to uh, humble ourselves this morning in relation to uh, your will and your good purpose in our lives. Lord, help uh, your word to sharpen up our resolve in terms of that suffering in our lives is ordained by you and it is good. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would help us see the truths and the beauties of your word this morning. In your precious name, amen. Rightio, so First Peter chapter 1. Verses 6 to 9 is what we're looking at. Um, and so, let, yeah, let's read it together. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, 
so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen? What a wonderful reality. So Peter starts off with, you rejoice in this. What is it that we rejoice in? What is the this? Well, we rejoice in the realities of the first five verses. If you've got it there on your screen, just scroll back to verse 1. As we pick through and we see, and it's almost like having a therefore in Scripture. Whenever we see a therefore, whatever is about to be said is to be read in light of what has just been said. And so what is revealed to us is that the reality is that we are chosen. It starts with that we are exiles chosen by God, that we've been giving a living hope that our salvation is in fact being kept and guarded by the power of God. And so as we walk through this life that is full of ups and downs, hilltops and valleys, our life may be filled with grace and peace that it would be multiplied to those of us who are in Christ. Because the reality that our joy is grounded in these realities, yes? It's so clear, it's such a blessing to start Scripture in such a way as Peter has, opposed to the opposite example is the child on Christmas morning that had their joy and their rejoicing grounded in something so fragile and perishable. But just last week we saw uh, that Peter says, you rejoice because your inheritance is unfading, it's imperishable, and it's undefiled. So in light of these glorious realities and truths, for those of us who are in Christ, our future hope and glory in Christ in heaven would lead us to rejoice when the reality that is to come and that follows is trials and suffering that are in fact the will of God for our good and for His glory. So again, by nature, we would say, look, hang on a second, suffering and rejoicing, I'm just not getting it, I'm not feeling the vibe of suffering and joy going together. Our our heart's desire, and I'll say our sin's nature, our sinful desire wants to run from, whenever we see on the horizon potential suffering or grief, We want to run, we want to sidestep from that because of our experiences through life that we know that it robs us of our joy and our happiness and we avoid it at all costs. We've all been there. We can all relate. But let's have a look this morning as we progress on through how God through Peter here reconciles the two together for us. Even now for a short time, If necessary, you suffer grief and trial. 
what is a short time? How do we define what a, a short time is? Would we say, are we happy to say that um, two minutes is not a very long time to have to wait, is it? Like two minutes, unless you're a, a two-year-old in the naughty corner, is probably going to feel like a lifetime. Or, or if I was to say to you, hey, look, for the next two minutes, uh, you've got to hold your breath for the next two minutes, underwater, not faking it, sitting here. And, and the reality is that people can only, the average person, I don't know, Sam probably spearfishes and holds his breath for 10 minutes, um, but the reality is that it's between 30 and 90 seconds, so all of a sudden, two minutes turns into life and death for the majority of people. Uh, what about the flip side, the, the other extreme of uh, marriage, say, and, and I see Dean and Aaron sitting up the back there. Uh, so how long have you guys been married for? A year and a half. So Dean, a year and a half into his life sentence, it, sorry, I'm kidding. Marriage is a beautiful thing ordained by God for life. So in comparison to life, one and a half years is not very long. So what is Peter relating to? What is he measuring a short time against? And the comparison has to be against eternity. Our life in comparison to eternity in James chapter 4 verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor, appearing for a little while, then vanishing. Okay, your life, our life here on earth, in comparison to eternity, is like your breath on a cold winter's morning. We've all done it. You don't have to be kids to just breathe out and see your breath. I'm breathing smoke, the kids say. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. This is the context as to how we view and receive God's timescale for suffering and trials in our life. We can't just box it into our own little uh, world of comfort where we say it's only for a, for a few hours or, or days or weeks or months or years. No. The reality is that it could be for some, and it is for some, an entire lifetime. And if that is you, take courage because God tells us that it is but a blip in reality to, to all of eternity. The other fact that we've got to come to terms with and, and is definitely a wrestle is the fact that I said earlier that it is God's will. God wills it. His sovereign hand over our lives and our circumstances cannot just be brushed aside. We can't overlook it. And, and I think we get it from two examples just in these four verses, uh, where the first example is the results of suffering that we're going to see. But secondly, in, in these two simple words where it says, if necessary, these two words let us know that, hey, 
who's saying it's necessary? Who deems if it's necessary? It's actually saying that somebody has a plan, somebody is in control, even as vague as that is, if necessary, someone is in charge. If you go on a road trip, somebody's in charge, they are driving the vehicle, and into that trip, it doesn't take very long before somebody, a passenger in the car says, hey, look, are we going to stop soon? And, and if, if you're Bill Fields, it'll be, no, we're not stopping at all. We, we're going from A to B. I'm a destination man. I'm not like that at all, am I, Amy? Um, and so, oh, look, only if it's necessary, we'll stop. We're on a time schedule. And so then, then the next thing to follow up from that is usually, well, I'm actually really busting. I've, I've got to go to the toilet. And, and okay, so it might deem necessary to then stop. So for us that are born-again believers, it's, it's not hard and there should be no doubts at all that God is in charge. He's driving the car and if necessary, Romans 11:33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and untraceable His ways. God's ways are not our ways. And we struggle with that so often. You know, that passenger, they're sitting there, legs crossed, and, and the driver just goes right past a rest stop with toilet blocks, and the passenger's sitting there going, why the heck didn't we stop? Well, maybe the driver just knows that there's something a little bit better up the road. Romans 8.28 encourages us to grab onto the reality that we know that all things work together for the, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. So church, it is by faith and it is for faith that we step forward. We step forward into the realities of, of the trials and the grief and the suffering, even though for a short time, if necessary, we suffer grief in various trials. So as Christians, what's the first thing that comes to our mind? What's the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of Christian suffering? And bark it out while I have a drink. Anyone? Very good. Well done. 100 points. That's the one I thought of too. The persecuted church is, is the first thing that popped into my mind too. Christians suffering for the sake of the gospel. You know, we got Christians living in, um, in North Korea, in Somalia, in Africa, and um, the third one, when I find it in my notes, uh, Yemen in the Middle East, okay? And in this order, Christians, it, it, these places are the most dangerous places to live for a Christian. You know, Christians in these countries are beaten they're imprisoned and they're murdered for following Jesus. And, and in our eyes here, we say, oh, we've got it easy, haven't we? Because we look and we say, well, that treatment is so unjust. The extremes of their punishment is so over the top and unfit for the crime, if you even want to say that there's a crime there. It falls into the category of inhumane, which equals 
trials and suffering, yeah? It's not hard to emphasise that, hey, these guys, these Christians in these countries, they know what it's like to suffer. We go there so often, don't we? And I'm not minimising that. Okay, it is up there. You know, it's regarded in Scripture. Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Later on, Peter himself refers to it in chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, for the sake of righteousness. And here's the clincher. If they should... uh, Sorry, if they should... If it should be God's will that they would suffer for doing good. However, Peter doesn't specifically hone in on any particular levels of suffering here. What he's actually wanting us to see primarily is that there's a variety of trials, various trials, and the The product of those trials is a level of grief and a level of suffering which is not equal across the board. Okay, we we can't look sideways and, and go, look at those guys suffering. You know, what I regard as suffering, you might say, Drew, that is not regarded as suffering. Look at those Christians in North Korea. They know what suffering is. So again, the emphasis is not on the level of suffering here. It's on the reality of the enduring of trials, as minimal as they may seem. And it's clear, and so that we are clear, actually, sorry, is that the the definition of trial is a test, a test of performance, a test of qualities and suitability of someone or something, and Peter makes it so clear here what's on test, what's being trialed in verse 7, that the proven character of your faith, the genuineness of your faith is what is being tested and trialed through a variety, through a myriad, the list is unending of trials that are going to come your way. Where else do we see this play out? We see it play out in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, the parable of the sower. And I think this verse actually sums up precisely what's going on here. And it says, and the seed on the rock, okay, the the seed of the gospel has been spread by the sower and it has fallen on the stones. And that is the hearer that receives the word with joy but it doesn't take root. These kinds of people, they believe for a while and then fall away in times of what? In times of testing and trial. In other words, these kinds of people is, would have what we would call a confessional faith. They're happy to say all sorts of spiritual things, even to the point where, hey, yeah, God is in control. He's in control of my life. But when testing comes, when that trial comes, there's a clear dysfunctional faith. There's a clear functional disbelief 
in the way they respond with their actions. Their words and their actions do not marry up. And soon they're taking control. They're grabbing that wheel. I've seen that rest stop. And I am so desperate. I'm going I'm to steer it myself. Because I know what's best. Now, it doesn't define in Luke what the trial was. It doesn't even... There's no level of trial uh, noted there in, in Luke. But the result is so crystal clear. There is no genuine faith. We see trial also in Galatians chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul is commending the believers in Galatia, and he says, you did not despise me or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. We've got to accept that trial comes through the reality of ill health. Not, not even your ill health. A loved one, somebody you know so well falls ill, your world is turned upside down, you've got to make adjustments. And that's what Paul is saying to the believers in Galatia. On the contrary, he says, you received me as if an angel of God or as Jesus himself. Their love and their care for a fellow believer in a time of testing maybe your own ill health. Paul's example here, his own physical condition would have been a trial for him personally. The variety and vastness of of trials comes through ill health. And final example is in Matthew 28 where we see temptation. Matthew 28, 41, just prior to this, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's on his way to the cross and he himself wrestled so much so that he, he, he sweat drops of blood. And no doubt Satan was there in his ear saying, mate, you can pull rank here, you don't have to go to the cross. But we know through what Jesus prayed, he, the request was made, if this cup of suffering could pass from me, but not my will but yours be done, Father. And so then he comes to the disciples in verse 41 and he says, "Uh, Brothers, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this isn't a stretch to say that temptation here is a trial because the original word in Greek for temptation in Matthew is exactly the same word used for trial in Peter. So trials come through the crafty work of Satan himself. But don't misinterpret what I'm saying here. When we think of the sovereignty of God over our trials, God does not do the tempting. Okay, let's be super clear about that. He cannot tempt us into sin. James 1, 13 to 15 makes that super clear. No one under trial should ever say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anybody, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. After desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. 
that's the work of Satan, church. He will throw whatever he can in your path to slow your love, your affection, and your obedience to God. And God will say, if necessary, I will allow it. And it's not because God enjoys watching us squirm and suffer. No, it is because our faith is so precious to Him. He refines it that that our faith would be most glorious and praiseworthy to Him. And in turn, that reveals to us personally that our faith is genuine. And in the midst of trial and suffering, we too can turn and say, Lord, not our will, but yours be done, Father. God's character-building exercise can only come through the fiery trials of the furnace. And Lord willing, the outcome will be that of Romans 5, where it says, affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint the first five verses. Peter likens it to the refining of gold there in verse 7. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For gold to be as pure as it can be, it must go through the trials of the, the goldsmith's furnace. And as gold is heated to extraordinary temperatures, the impurities are burned off. And so what's left, what remains is pure gold. And, and gold is a beautiful product, isn't it? It's, it's a beautiful resource. And, and it's an expensive resource because of its beauty. And, and when it's refined further, when it's purified into to even a, a more purer sense, or and then it's turned into a, a piece of jewelry, it, it becomes even more magnificent. It becomes so beautiful and its value just skyrockets. But Peter says that the proven character of your faith is far more valuable than gold, which is in fact perishable, as if to say, look guys, I am so sorry for this weak, poor, pathetic example of gold here. But without this example, we would struggle. As weak as it is, we would struggle to grasp the realities of how God refines our faith. We wouldn't even come close to grasping the reality of it. God refines our faith through the fiery trials of His furnace. Why? So that our faith in Him would be proven to be genuine. And so that it may, not only that, but that it may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, on that day, on the day of judgment, as simply as it says in Hebrews 9, just as as man is appointed to die once and then after that face judgment, that's as simple as it is, the result may be 
praise, glory and honour. And what will that sound like for those of us whose faith is proven to be genuine? God will say to us on that day of judgment, welcome my good and faithful servant. And to those with simply a confessional faith, that time after time in testing of trial, there's an abandonment of the faith. I don't know if God is real anymore. So I'm going to fix my own issues. Again, I'm going to grab that wheel. I'm going to take on the mantra of the world that says, I am strong, I am courageous. I've got the power to, if I set my mind to anything, I can overcome. Which in a nutshell, you are saying to God, hey, I've got this, thanks anyway. I am God. I will control my circumstances, thank you very much. And on that day, on that day of judgment, God will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's heavy. Peter continues, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Praise God. Peter, as we know, he was an eyewitness with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He spoke with Jesus. And he is simply spelling out the realities of what is obvious to the readers and for us today. You haven't seen him, and yet you love him. We don't see him today, but we love him and we believe in him. And Peter comes full circle here. He starts with, and you rejoice in this. And he ends here with, you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because you know as a believer, you know who you are in Christ. You know that through faith, and not just a, a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge, a transformative belief in Jesus that says, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. No longer am I separated from the love of God, but I have been welcomed into as a child of God. I have been bought from death into life. I have been transferred from darkness into the glorious light of life in Christ. So in the midst, right in the middle of trial, we don't look sideways and say, God, why them? Why do they get to and I don't? Why me and not them? Or we don't look sideways for somewhere to step to avoid something that is going to be so valuable and glorious and precious and praiseworthy to God. Church, we fix our gaze on Christ, who is in fact the author and perfecter of your faith. I tell you what, it is an absolute blessing 
to sit beside the bed of a, a brother or sister in hospital or to re- receive text messages and updates of rejoicing, acknowledging the, the providence of God in their situation, the sovereign hand of suffering in their circumstance that leads to peace and joy. It mightn't be jumping up and down and rejoicing and praising God with hands lifted high. No, it's, it's a quiet, soft, potentially even silent through tears of inexpressible joy because they know they are receiving the goal of their faith, the salvation of their souls. Let's pray, church. Father God, we long, we long so longingly to be in the presence of you, to be in your holy and joyous presence. Lord, that longing should stem from the reality that you are our ultimate treasure. Lord, you have promised to give us, for those that believe, a promised helper. Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would help us to endure the trials that produce suffering and grief. That in those moments, Lord, we wouldn't look sideways. We would look and fix our gaze on you. And and in that reality of our future hope and glory in Christ, our inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled and unfading, leads our heart to rejoice in the midst of such sorrow and grief. Father, we praise you that it is your good plan and purpose to refine us into a vessel so praiseworthy for your glory and adoration, Father.